Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot. Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome to another Invested Investor podcast. This week, I'm sat opposite Tamara Giltsoff. Tamara was recently the head of innovation at the Department of International Development. She co-founded a company called Product Health. And this week, we'll be talking about impact investment, the lean startup methodology, and unlocking capital. So Tamara, let's hear a little bit about your background, please. Thank you. It's great to be part of this. So I'll roll back a little bit. I come from a creative background originally. So I studied design originally and then brought my design and creative skills into business in the late 90s, where I first met Nat Billington, who went on to become my co-founder of Product Health. And so I guess I'm a slightly unusual combination of creative thinker and designer with business acumen and commercial leadership, mixed with a very strong focus on impact. And the impact focus is really, I guess I'm a natural innovator and I see, you know, big challenges in the world and I see them as opportunities. And I've been very driven by those big opportunities, partly because I'm fascinated by them and there's a sort of sense of purpose to my work, but also because I genuinely see sort of intractable problems as opportunities to create value as well as solve the problems. Okay. So where did the opportunity for product health come from? So Nat and I have known each other for a long time, as I said. I had been working with Telefonica for about a year, looking at Internet of Things, connected devices, enabled business models, largely in the consumer market through O2. And Nat, at that point, had just launched Synergy Growth Investment Fund. And I think Nat and his business partner, Steve, had promised each other to sort of keep a bit of space to incubate ideas themselves both engineers by background. And Nat and I would talk regularly about business that we were working on. And Nat sat down and said, I'm doing this really interesting piece of research with Oxford University on batteries. And I'm combining the sort of world expertise on battery chemistry and battery behavior with Oxford's smartest machine learning guys. And he talked about sort of putting sensing and communications on the battery, capturing data from the battery and and analysing it. And I said, well, that sounds quite similar to this Internet of Things phrasing that we've been talking about in Telefonica and sort of commercial business. And he said, yeah, you know what? I think this is an Internet of Things play. Not that that really means anything other than, it, you know, it, it's a sort of technology phrase, I suppose. 
And I had always been interested in technology that enables new business models. So Nat was very technical and an engineer. And I was, and still am, very interested in what technology can enable in terms of the business models that it unlocks. And he also said to me, well, we've got this first potential customer, which is a company called Bbox. And they are currently making manufacturing or overseeing the manufacturing of small solar home system devices. So think small solar panel, battery box, a set of devices like lights and small radios, although I don't think they were doing radios at that time. Are they based in the UK? They were distributing in Africa. So they're based out of the UK. And he said, from what I understand of this market, in order for low income communities to get access to these solar systems, and obviously the price of solar panels had plummeted at that point. So it's a sort of convergence of these different technologies. They need to be able to sell these on a pay-as-you-go basis or pay-over-time basis. So what we know is that low-income communities can pay on a daily basis. So what they were using for energy or for light was typically kerosene at that point. So you could pay on a daily basis for something. You can't necessarily put $250 up front to pay for the unit. But if you connect the device remotely... You are in control of the device. You have some sort of management over that asset and therefore the ability to do payment over time. And so that really was the sort of business opportunity that this connected device. And then the clever piece behind it, we thought, well, we're not only we're going to connect the battery unit, we can also start to understand how it's being used by the end user in very remote parts of rural Africa, let's just say, if that's where we're distributing or that's where Bebots are distributing. And then we can anticipate in advance if it's going to fail or if there's a problem with the battery to begin with or if it's being misused so if it's being overused and undercharged consistently and we can prevent that and so you know in conversation I mean that was sort of basically the conversation perhaps not as sophisticated at that point but that was the opportunity that we started to kind of play around with and it combined a number of things for me that was interesting one clean energy so I've been very and still am very passionate about addressing climate challenge and our energy challenge and as was Nat to a business model that could reach people that otherwise wouldn't have access to this type of energy and clean energy and three sort of solving a problem around when you distribute in remote places how do you make sure those assets are maintained and protected and I was also interested in and the market hasn't quite got there yet but what happens at the end of life of those assets and that material in the, those assets. So it really piqued my interest. And I think the other thing that was interesting for me was discussing this with Nat. So another big theme in my career, and, and I really believe for businesses and for startups, is the importance of relationships. And so Nat and I had worked together previously at Oyster Partners, which went on to become LBI. He sold that, I think, in about 2003 or 2004, So, you know, I worked for him and with him at that point, and we always shared business ideas throughout our career. And he was a great friend, but also we could move between sort of deep friendship to business relationship. And I thought, well, what a great opportunity. I'm really interested intellectually in this business opportunity. I had been doing some business with Nokia in Africa, and that was the other interest area. And there's an opportunity to do something with Nat. We've got a very good working relationship as well as personal relationship. And I know Nat's background, you know, he's a successful entrepreneur. And so that was sort of enough for us to come together. And I think for him, you know, he was a brilliant businessman. 
and a fantastic engineer, but he really appreciated the sort of creative perspective on things and very much my kind of focus on the business model and business development, I guess, or innovation, however you want to describe it, but really understanding what is the problem we're trying to solve here and how do we use that to help inform our product development. So I think it was a great balance of two people with different skills. So we set about beginning that relationship. I think that was in 2012, I'm going to say. That you started Product yeah. Health? That we started I'm thinking the and, thinking around yeah. it. So from Product Health, you moved on to the Department of International Development. Mm. How did that transition happen? How did you end yeah. up at Difford? Yeah, Product Health sort of started to come to a natural end for various reasons. And I was also a bit of a strange time for me in business. Nat had passed away. I just lost my father and my mother was very unwell. So I'd actually sort of stepped out, I think, by December 2015. I was advising Product Health. And in January 2016, I think it was like really early January, Nat's best friend, Lorenzo Wood, that he built his first business with, Waste Partners, just sent me this link to this job description. He said nothing in the email. I just got this link and I clicked on it because it was Lorenzo. And... It was a link to the job at Diffid, head of innovation at Diffid. And at that point, I wasn't looking for a job actually at all. And I certainly wasn't looking for a job in government. <laughs> never had done before. Never imagined I would work in government. I knew Diffid quite well because they had taken a strong interest in our work at Product Health because we were very much playing in one of the markets that they had supported, which is the off-grid energy market, both on the mini-grid side and the solar home system market. So access to clean energy for, you know, rural off-grid communities in developing economies. There's all sorts of impact reasons to support that market from a development perspective. So I knew Diffid through the work we were doing in Product Health, and we actually had received a grant from Diffid through the, the GSMA, which is the mobile industry body that runs a number of innovation funds for Diffid, mobile for development funds. So, you know, I already had a relationship with Diffid. Just for the listeners, can you give a quick overview of Diffid? Yeah. So Diffid is the UK's commitment to development and humanitarian funding. The UK commits 0.7% of gross national income, which was written into law under David Cameron's leadership. Depending on where the economy is at, it's somewhere between 12 and £13 billion pounds of budget a year. A large percentage of that goes to multilaterals, so the UN system and the World Bank and IFC through the World Bank. A large chunk of it goes to humanitarian response, which can be anything to do with responding to natural disasters, as well as to crises like the Rohingya crisis or Syria response. I think it's about a 50-50 split humanitarian to development funding. On the development side... Our goals are really to address the sustainable development goals, 17 of them. <laughs> a lot. We'll, we'll definitely let people look for those online. Yeah, exactly. It's ultimately things like access to clean energy, education for all. And what was your role at Difford and how much did you have in funding? I came in as head of innovation. Diffid's large, but how Diffid manages this significant budget is to outsource everything. So a little bit different to other government departments in that we're not delivering core services directly to public. We're delivering services all across the world, predominantly 28 target countries. 
And how we deliver is through what we call program partners. And a partner might be the UN and its various agencies, or it might be a non-profit organization doing you know, humanitarian response work. It might be the GSMA, as I mentioned, or it might be partners that we have put in place and set up. So the Global Innovation Fund, which was under my responsibility, is one example of that. So we never actually directly spend our budget. And the organization has multiple different departments. So it has the country offices across Africa and South Asia, and they operate with an amount of autonomy. So they have their own budgets. And then centrally, there's a large department called the private sector department that manages quite a lot of the impact investment funding through CDC, which is the private equity arm, um, development capital, private equity, and now impact investment under CDC impact program. And then they also manage quite a lot of the private sector relationships we work with. So we're often partnering with private sector partners to address development challenges. There's a large research department that fund a lot of the early stage market-based solutions to development challenges. So GSMA funding sits through the research department, but they'll also fund kind of early R&D into new vaccinations or agriculture solutions as global public good. I sat within a department called EPIC, Emerging Policy, Innovation and Capability, which was sort of part foresight group and part sort of strategic consulting group. And we really existed to drive innovation through the rest of the organisation and often actually to connect the quite disconnected departments. We were very catalytic, but we were also sort of brokering relationships and looking for opportunities. My predecessor had designed and set up the Global Innovation Fund, and that still sat within our department, although it's like anomaly, because really my department would sort of incubate new approaches and then embed them within the rest of the organisation. But it was a very internal focused role. So my role wasn't to, and in fact, DFID can't, as I said, do this directly because of our governance rules. We weren't allowed to take money and decide who we invest it in. We'd have to do that through a vehicle and that vehicle would have investment committees. We weren't allowed to be on those investment committees. We would often put suggestions to those funds, but there's a certain amount of autonomy that those funds need to have. So I wasn't directly making decisions about who we invested in. What was the main reason for that? Why do you not directly invest? There are lots of reasons, actually. The way that DFID is set up, and it's a lot to do with sort of treasury rules and different ways of sort of accounting for budget. So there's sort of a line which is DFID people, which is very different to programme funding. And we're spending public money. And so from their perspective and from public's perspective, the least amount should be spent on people and the most amount should be spent on program going into market. And the most efficient way to do that, which was all designed before I arrived, obviously, was to do that through partners. So that's sort of one of the reasons. Another reason is DFID, again, because it's public money, won't take risk on its own balance sheet. So you have to have a separate vehicle. And often we're not talking risk investments, we're talking grant funding, but we're increasingly doing debt and equity And so you need a vehicle to do that. And then related to that for governance issues. So I think in the kind of 80s, DFID had been subject to a bit of what's now called tide aid, where, you know, certain favours were done and probably not always intentionally, but you end up giving certain partners funding and certain 
entities funding. And actually the system is designed to make sure that there's open competition and fair distribution of public funds. So it's a sort of governance approach to it, which makes a huge amount of sense. It's not always the most efficient way of doing it. And it can mean we're a little bit far removed. We call it the delivery chain. So sometimes we can be quite far removed from the solution. And actually a lot of the work that I was doing inside DFID was to try and close that gap and to get much closer to the market-based solutions and the innovators and innovation. Did you find it quite hard to actually find out key information about that end product then coming back to DFID? Not necessarily hard to find out about the end product because there's lots of events, contact with reports. So a lot of these funds have to be producing reports on the markets that they're supporting because ultimately we're trying to solve global challenges and create global public good. So they weren't necessarily hidden, but we weren't always what, you know, so I couldn't off the top of my head tell you in detail about Global Innovation Fund's 30 investments. I could tell you about some of them, but I wouldn't have had the time to get close to them all and it wasn't really my role. So we were close enough and actually one of the things that we really pushed as a department and in my role is to get much closer. So we created something called Dev Talks, which was a bit of a play on TED Talk. And we regularly convened and brought inside innovators to tell their stories of how they're growing businesses or solving challenges in some of the most difficult parts of the world. And always surprisingly hard to get people to leave their day job, you know, their desk and their day job, but really, really important to get you know, close to the innovation. So that was just one way that we looked at that as a problem. One of the pieces of work that I did and my sort of thesis, I suppose, was that I quite strongly felt without sort of stepping on our governance rules that we as a department needed to operate with a bit more of an investor mindset to take a little bit more of a vested interest in the success of these innovators and solutions that we were supporting quite significantly with large sums of development funding. So is that, in a sense, following on investments, so such as an angel investor might invest in three rounds? Is it, is it that, that kind of following it? Yes, exactly. I mean, I think, first of all, from my experience as an entrepreneur, there's the sort of capital part of that, but there's also the incentive part of that. So if you put money in in the really early stage, whether you're government organisation putting grant funding in or an angel investor taking risk. My belief is that, you know, the good thing about putting equity in is the skin in the game, right? So you really care where that money gets to. And we cared a lot about public funding, but we hadn't really quite set up that mindset to really think, actually, we've put money into a portfolio of early stage businesses. Some of them we will learn you know, are not going to make it or they're not solving the problem we thought they were set out as a problem. And so at that point, we need to, we described it as exit. That's, it has different meaning in the venture capital world, but, you know, sort of say, okay, we put some money in early stage. Let's not keep funding that, but let's look to the solutions that are demonstrating potential, probably because they've got a very good uh, management team. They've really understood the pain point of the market and they're demonstrating through the grants that we've given them that, you know, they're validating their hypothesis. That this is looking good. Again, what we can't do at this point is to say, OK, we're going to invest in them all the way through. But what we can do is create a series of vehicles that we could feed pipeline to. And we can also 
take interest in those solutions and say, hang on, this really looks like it's showing potential. Where else is there funding that could support it? And if we can't fund it, what vehicles do we need to crowd in other investors that might take an interest in that? What ways of using our money catalytically could we do to support this huge pipeline of innovation that we would create through the grant funding? The other piece that we're trying to do in Global Innovation Fund have been, I mean, the work that they're currently doing begins to address what is often called the patient capital gap or the pioneer funding gap. So that point where grant funding really drops off and there's a need for debt and equity, but, you know, very patient capital in that phase. So, I mean, one of the other gaps is that a lot of these funds sit centrally in DFID and actually the reality of the challenge is on the ground locally in the countries that we're trying to get these solutions to play out in. And so I was trying to encourage DFID to focus much more of that innovation funding locally and venture support and ecosystem support locally. So if you think about what Innovate UK and UK government has been quite good at doing is building the entrepreneur ecosystem in the UK through tax breaks for early investors through to significant efforts supporting Silicon Roundabout and Tech City in London and now, you know, regionally and, you know, creating all sorts of things that support that ecosystem. And then it starts to attract talent and it starts to give confidence to entrepreneurs. So we can't expect as development agencies put innovation funding in from a central part out of London and hope that they're going to make it somewhere far from our country. And so I think there's a recognition across the development sector, but certainly across DFID, that much more of that capital needed to go, not, you know, not all of it needed to go into grants, but actually using some of that money to invest in venture support and ecosystem support on the ground, engaging with local governments and doing that together. Is that working with local governments, but also local investors as well? Exactly. Local investors and also encouraging non-local investors to set up locally and to come into those markets. And I think we're at this point now where there's enough interest, certainly in Africa, and there's a few you know, venture capital firms like Partech, French venture capital, that have set up dedicated Africa funds. There's been a flurry of accelerators um, some doing you know, really good jobs, others not across Africa. There's something like 200 tech hubs, I think, across Africa. There's activity happening, but we want that activity to increase. Africa has 54 countries. There are pockets of you know, really thriving entrepreneurial ecosystems, which we should support, but we should also begin to support the ones that are not thriving. Was Africa your main focus? It's DFID's main focus and South Asia. So we had presence in Nepal, Bangladesh, Pakistan, and some work in India. But most of what we invest in in India is actually, and that, and, and actually a lot of, um, I can't remember the name of the fund, but the, a lot of our activity in India is more returnable capital because India doesn't necessarily now need our development support. But we're interested in innovations that emerge from India and how they could be relevant to other countries that we're operating in. So you've got blended investment, angels or venture capitalists and the grant money coming in, all working together, all supporting in countries throughout the world. 
What do you think countries like India that have developed far beyond our direct aid now yeah. and, we're, and we're monitoring what's going on and trying to use their technology elsewhere, what do you think Britain's position is in the modern innovation? Mm. Yeah, so I think there's a number of things changing and it's not just that some countries like India are reaching or have reached middle income status. Bangladesh is fast heading towards that. And in those countries, our role changes So I think that is happening. I think that there for quite a long time has been a recognition that development is working with these 17 sustainable development goals. They're hugely ambitious. And although DFID's budget sounds significant to a lot of people, it's a tiny percentage of the investment needed to address those sustainable development goals. And we also, in fact, probably the main point is that we know that as development agencies, we can't solve most of those problems. The market needs to solve them. The humanitarian context is different and is almost like a sector in its own right. And so sort of discount that in this thesis, I suppose. It behaves in its own way. Innovation does need to happen and is happening in the humanitarian context. But it's a larger system and a much more delicate system. You can't allow the free market to happen in the humanitarian context. It's just a very different thing to play in. But I think there's a recognition there has been for a while that in order to address the sustainable development goals, the SDGs, we're going to need to elevate the pace of change and the approach to that change and to work much closer with the private sector to do that. The fourth industrial revolution is coming to these countries, has come to developing economies. And in fact, a lot of innovation is emerging out of these economies much faster in a way than it is developed economies because it's leapfrogging. So mobile payments is a good example of that. It's prolific across developing economies. Started by M-Pesa, which is the mobile payment system in Kenya, which DFID funded in its early days. You know, the adoption of mobile payment is much more prolific than it is in developed economies as one example of, you know, ways that we can leapfrog things. Equally, things like off-grid energy, You know, when there is no grid, there's no barriers to overcome in terms of behavioural or financial or business model barriers to leap to the sort of new solutions. So there is a sort of shift happening in, in the way that we think about development and also the emergence of technologies and the business models emerging around those technologies in the countries that we've been traditionally operating in. I think there's also a recognition that our economic development models need to encompass entrepreneurial ecosystems and investments, venture capital investment and growth of startups as part of that economic development model, as well as solving impact challenges. And I think when we started to fund a lot of innovation and entrepreneurs in the early days, it was mainly because we knew that we wouldn't have all of the solutions ourselves. And so we were investing in innovators to address market failures. But actually, you know, that results not just in addressing a failure around getting low-cost education or micro-insurance to farmers or access to energy or payment for water services. It also develops economies, right? And I think that that's also a recognition that's happening. There's also an understanding that we can make much more of the money that we are investing if we use it catalytically, if we use it in a way that 
in some instances might de-risk investment for investors to bring in wider capital or if we're the first in and then we use it to crowd in other investors or if we you know take the pain of or the cost of venture support and ecosystem and policy influence away from an investor and say we'll fund that we'll partner with you we'll fund that part of it or if we use our capital to de-risk fx Global Innovation Fund is a good example where we've experimented with this on a number of investments. And I think we're just touching the sides on that. I think we're just beginning to use our money in that way. It's a very different way of using money. It requires us to us being different to set up much more flexible funds that would allow different leadership to put money into you know venture capital one minute funding ecosystems on the ground the next minute blending grant debt and equity in one investment much more sort of flexible approaches to getting innovations to scale and it would require i think it requires a bit more of an investor mindset yeah to say we really care about scaling these innovations not to reach half a million people but to solve a problem for a billion people and then we've really solved it at the level of the sustainable development goal how about taking equity from the businesses is that something in the future that could happen or does happen it does happen already as i said we can only do that through a separate vehicle vehicle yeah so global innovation fund takes equity it returns its capital through so it sort of recycles the returns and i think they've had one exit where they have Well, they've sold their equity on, and have returned that, and they're looking at creating a what they call a returnable capital sub fund, where they would take much lower ambition returns than a traditional venture capital fund. So they return the profit back into Difford. Back into their vehicle, they would never come back into no, Difford. That's what I mean. We yeah. wouldn't know what to do with it, <laughs> and also because of the way that Difford is set up as an organisation and the point seven percent commitment we are legally bound to spend that money every year so actually having money come back to us is not useful we'd want to recycle it and do more with it so to return it we're doing some interesting things we funded something called energize africa which was a bit of a sort of experiment in crowdfunding debt for the solar home system market you're effectively creating loans for people to pay off that asset over time so you need continuous amounts of working capital Defid have created a vehicle called Energize Africa which allows UK public to invest their money at risk for a somewhere between a 5 to 7% return on that debt. So again, Defid's not necessarily receiving that return at the moment, but we put money in to catalyze UK public to invest in. So that's a good example of sort of using our funding catalytically. And then we've got CDC who they have the private equity fund which is much bigger but they've also got CDC impact program and within that they've got fund of funds they've invested directly through venture capital vehicles as well as investing directly for equity so we are doing it but we're just beginning and i think there's much further to go where do you see different evolving i mean i've talked a little bit about the shifts happening in development capital and the development sector at large i think the other big shift happening which is particular to the uk is post referendum heading towards brexit and a deal and uk's trade relationships globally so we saw the prime minister take a delegation of uk 
entrepreneurs to Africa, visiting three countries, which is a very clear statement that Britain is open to doing business with those countries. And that's both ways, right? So that's looking for UK businesses and entrepreneurs to build out those businesses in those markets on the African continent. Equally, for investors to look for opportunities in those markets and to set up and build presence there, as well as for us to learn from entrepreneurs building businesses in Africa and to support them to grow their solutions here or to influence what we're doing here. And I think that signals a really interesting time for UK business and UK government. I really felt the shifts are sort of happening across government, so much greater collaboration between government departments like the Department of International Trade and the Department of Business, Energy and Industrial Strategy, which fund Innovate UK, as well as the Foreign Office and DFID coming together to say, where could we use our money together? What are interesting strategic priorities for UK? What are the problems that we're trying to solve here? What are the investors looking at here? The most obvious example is fintech. UK is a leader on fintech, London particularly, fintech and financial well-being or financial inclusion, as it's often called in developing economies, is critical to the development of those economies, but also for individuals to be able to access energy, access services, health services, education services, microinsurance. And so there's a really clear relationship between you know, those two markets, one out of Britain and one emerging across the African continent. I think that's really exciting, actually. And if we can create a development path that's much more joined up and focused around, you know, big missions around solving access to clean energy or resilient agriculture of the future or access to health services for all, access to education for all, in the most efficient ways, if we are sort of looking at those missions from the same perspective, not necessarily exactly the same solutions, I think it starts to get really interesting, actually, for investors and for entrepreneurs. You know, watch this space. I think the fintech space will be the first area for that to really come alive. What advice would you have for those entrepreneurs and other entrepreneurs that wanted to get into development or innovation of development countries? One of the other challenges is that we need to support growing entrepreneurs locally, right? We're only doing half our job if we're growing all of our entrepreneurs in Britain and then having them build businesses in, on the African continent. There are entrepreneurs emerging and ecosystems emerging in hubs in Nigeria, Lagos, Accra, Cape Town. Joburg is emerging. So we need to be on the ground as development organisations and as venture capitalists looking for and seeding and supporting those entrepreneurs locally. But equally, you know, entrepreneurs that have built businesses outside of those continents, I think that there is, you know, opportunity to sort of have a blended combination of those two things. And also to come in to sort of mix up the talent, right? So bring in the experience of entrepreneurs that have built businesses in other parts of the world and mix them with the experiences of people that are building businesses on the ground in Africa. I always say that diversity always wins. And I think, you know, the best solutions come from a mixture of backgrounds and approaches to building business. You can't expect as a venture capitalist to invest at a distance. 
and not understand and get on the ground and really understand how building a business in those markets work. Equally, you know, what we know is those businesses on the ground need venture support. They sometimes need leadership. They certainly need patient capital. So, you know, I, I sort of feel like it's not about Britain exporting the best of, but Britain really working with and on the ground in Africa. And that's how we'll get the best of this working. And I think that HMG can see that, but, you know, we'll see how this plays out. I think it's a really interesting time. And I think it is an example of where global Britain could unlock some new things. I will say that I'm also very personally excited in Africa as a continent. I think there's some incredible innovators there. There's an incredible creative and arts scene emerging in Africa that people often overlook. Africa's going to have... 25% of the population by 2050 has the fastest growing youth population in the world and plenty of big challenges to address and opportunities to work with. So I suppose I would encourage entrepreneurs and investors to work with that, to engage with it and work with it. Finally, with your own entrepreneurial hat on, having co-founded a business, what tips do you have for people wanting to get into it already? just starting their journey? Well, I'm going to start with prioritisation. Going back to Nat Billington, who we've mentioned quite a few times, and this has stuck with me forever, and I think it will stick with me forever. And, and, and by the way, this applies to any business or any job, and you could apply it to life, I suppose. But it's about prioritisation and really focusing on what is important, which is kind of an obvious thing to say. But Nat once said to me, in the thick of product house where we were building hardware as well as software. Our customers were based in sub-Saharan Africa. We had a tiny team in East London. You know, you're right in the thick of trying to make this business. Well, actually not even trying to make the business work at that point. You're trying to validate your assumptions at that point and move from one stage to the next and bring your investors with you. He said to me, Tamara, just ask yourself every day what is the most important thing you need to focus on today to make the business a success and do that one thing. And it's such a helpful thing to think about. And actually, it was hugely helpful for me inside DFID, where in a policy environment, you're pulled in all sorts of different directions. It's a very reactive environment because you're working in a political context. And so you might plan to do one thing in the day and you open up your inbox and you've got a thousand urgent actions and ministerial requests or requests from senior parts of the organisation. And advice on something from a completely different part of government to suddenly do in the next four hours or eight hours or 24 hours. And so you can find yourself being pulled in all sorts of different directions. And it was, it was quite difficult to apply the prioritisation thing when I first joined DFID because I just wasn't sure all this stuff was. I just couldn't make sense of it, you know, what was really important. But actually, I really started to apply it after a while because I realised if I didn't, I wouldn't achieve what I was meant to be there to do which was to drive innovation through the organisation. And so I really focused on that prioritisation and I got very good at pushing back on things and actually quite good at ignoring things until they came back to me a third or fourth time. And then, you know, then I could validate, well, actually that now is a priority because it's come back to me the fourth time. I think prioritisation is really, really critical. I think I said this earlier, but I think impact is important mainly because... I mean, there are some great examples of businesses that have merged with no clear pain point that they're solving. But I think the most powerful businesses 
are businesses that are solving a real problem. And you could use that term impact quite broadly. I often think the best investor pitches are the ones that are most personal, where that person that's the founder has felt that pain point somehow. So look for some real world problems that need solving or real world problems that are actually maybe things like they might be about efficiencies, but the efficiencies through, let's say, digitization. I think the insure tech sector is a good example of this, right? We know that insurance is full of inefficiencies, full of inaccuracies, totally opaque. And actually digitizing that and addressing those inefficiencies makes the services exponentially better. And so it's, you know, really look for those pain points in the world and go address them. I think it's really rewarding to look for really tough pain points that have, if you solve them, a really exponential impact. But, you know, there's a spectrum, I guess, of pain points. And I think it really holds the team together as well. I think leadership is critical. And you heard my story earlier of my business partner and the leader of Product Health getting sick. Not in a million years did we imagine that scenario happening. But looking back, I think you need to imagine lots of scenarios happening and you need to, as a business, be able to quickly pivot and respond to situations. And you need a leader to kind of make sense of that. While all else is chaotic, you need somebody steering that ship. And I think that that was a really important lesson with product health. Design is much more accepted in the business world now as a sort of valuable competency to bring. I think in startup ventures, we should think of ourselves as venture designers, really designing the solution to somebody's problem. And in order to do good design, we know in order to design products that are not only beautiful, but that work seamlessly, you've really got to understand humans or your customer. And I think startup entrepreneurs should think of themselves as venture designers, solving a problem and applying the most seamless response to that problem, which, by the way, never ends because you've got to keep iterating and innovating. I'm a real believer in diversity. And I always say to people, diversity always wins in nature. It's always the most resilient thing. And I think we should think about diversity in its broadest sense. So cognitive diversity, the partnership with Nat and I is a really good example of that. I'm dyslexic. I come from a creative background. He's a brilliant engineer and businessman. I've been operating in business. I have a commercial but creative mindset. He has an engineering and commercial mindset. And the combination of those things, I think, is really interesting. So cognitive diversity, which is a term, Anthemis Group, which is a fintech venture capital firm, have phrased. I love it. Learning style diversity, gender diversity, race diversity, disability, working pattern diversity, I think the most successful organizations and startups are the ones that really, really make use of that diversity and end up being much more resilient because of it. Oh, Tamara, this has been absolutely fantastic. I can't wait to hear what is next for you. I know it's going to be huge, and no <laughs> doubt in Africa, probably. Definitely. Definitely in Africa. <laughs> so yeah, I hope the listeners have enjoyed it. And thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to another Invested Investor podcast. You can subscribe to all future podcasts via our website, investedinvestor.com, or via a number of podcast platforms online. Remember, you can order our book online. And be sure to follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn, and Facebook to get the most up-to-date, interesting, and insightful content from The Invested Investor. <music>